0: Hosea chapter 2, in the middle of your Old Testament, I've told you this before, there are a series of poetic books, five of them in all. They begin with Job, then they go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Following Song of Songs, the prophets begin. The first one is Isaiah. You go Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, then comes the minor prophet of Hosea. Hosea chapter 2, we'll get there in just a minute. Let me tell you a little bit about the prophet. We're in the second part of a six part series on the book of Hosea. It is a love story, but it's a love story unlike any love story you've ever read or seen, I can assure you. Uh, when the kingdom divided, the nation of Israel divided, it was after Solomon's reign, the third king, we went Saul, then we went David, then we went Solomon. Solomon's son, Jeroboam, or Rehoboam, split the kingdom with Jeroboam, and the divided kingdom, um, monopolizes the remainder of the Old Testament. It's during this time of the divided kingdom from about 900, 850 B.C. until 400 B.C., the prophets rise to a place of prominence in the Old Testament history. Uh, Now, a prophet, as you know, was a messenger from God. Uh, When you think of a prophet, you need to picture someone whose words, or someone in Hosea's case, whose life and story demonstrate a message from God to the kings and to the people. So in the Old Testament, there are 17 prophetic books. Books like Hosea, Daniel, like I said, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Nahum, Micah, Malachi. Uh, The prophet covers a time period from uh, David's reign. Remember Samuel? He was like the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Nathan was a prophet who served... Uh, King David, Elijah and Elisha, all the way throughout the end of the uh, Old Testament to Malachi. Now, in this time of Israel's history, I want to kind of help you see a timeline. The nation is about 1,300 years removed from Abraham and Sarah. Okay? Remember Genesis chapter 15, God picked Abraham, said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. All right? About 600 or 700 years after that, We have the time, the story of the great exodus from their slavery in Egypt. About 650 years after that, we come to the year about 790 BC. And now we're dealing with the time frame of Hosea. God's people, you remember in the Old Testament, were supposed to do one thing and do it well. They were supposed to demonstrate God, the one true God, superiority over all the idols, all the nations of Canaan. Now... Israel's limelight, its high point in history was just that. It was a moment in time. Uh, Israel's dominance, is Israel's prominence in the world geography lasted for less than a hundred years. About 80 years to be precise. And during this time, the kingdom reflected the one true God. But during the years of the divided kingdom, the kingdom did not. And bad things began to happen immeasurably. And often the prophet then was supposed to deliver messages of God, hoping that the kings would listen or the priests, or the people would listen. Uh, for 200 years, incidentally, in the nation of Israel's history, there were 19 kings over Israel. Remember when the kingdom divided, Israel was the kingdom to the north. Judah was the kingdom to the south. Israel had 19 kingdom or kings. And the Bible says that every one of them was evil. Every one of them. Now, we've had like 44 presidents in our nation's history. And some of them great and some of them not so much. But I doubt we would call any of them evil. Uh, the Bible says... Same thing happened in the first service. <laughs> the Bible says that all 19 of Israel's kings were evil, each one more nasty and more idolatrous than the first one. It's in this venue or this environment that Hosea's story comes to light. The very first chapter and the very first verse tells us that Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel under the reign of Jeroboam. Now, If you know the story, or if you've looked into it since Jonathan introduced this series last time, Hosea's message to the people of God, Hosea's story, the story of his marriage to Gomer, is supposed to represent something to Israel. Hosea kind of plays the role of God, and Gomer, his unfaithful, prostituting wife, plays the role of Israel now we can learn from this today 3000 years removed because we and our affections are every bit as uh, fluctuating as gomer's were we chase after the wrong things that will not satisfy for temporary fulfillment or temporary gratification just like gomer did and just like israel did the judgment that's coming in chapter 2 we'll read about it in a moment ago, in just a moment describes this rejection of God in detail. God is going to say, look, if you don't come back, if you don't turn around, this is what's going to happen to you. And when we get into this, I'm telling you, it's pretty dark. And some of you are going to think, wow, I can't believe God would talk to people like that. Believe it, because it's real. But there's one key thing you may not understand as you read through this chapter, and that's what I hope to focus on today. Because the judgment that's coming would not be final. It would not be everlasting. The judgment because of God's great love for His people was intended to draw them back and restore that broken relationship. That's what God does with people from cover to cover in this book. Now, like Jonathan told you last time, this is not your average love story. This is a love story unlike any love story I've ever read or seen. This is not a Hallmark movie with a Hallmark ending, I can assure you. Now, do you know what Hallmark movies are like? My wife Amy loves a good Hallmark movie. Now, I've watched enough of these that I've picked up on a pattern. Okay, first of all, a busy professional from the big city who can't find love for some reason unexpectedly finds herself in small-town America. Now, usually it's Christmas time, so everything's decorated beautifully. Maybe it's the week of the homecoming and the whole parade and the community is out with lights and banners and whatever it is. But while she was so busy and couldn't find love in the big city, she finds herself smack dab in the middle of a quaint country town and love is staring her straight in the face. Now, it's going to take about 90 minutes of this two hour movie for them to finally realize they love one another. She has found her prince charming. And Amy always assures me with about 30 minutes left to go in the movie, well, it's about to go bad. And I say, what do you mean? She says, well, these are all the same. You build the love for 90 minutes. It goes horribly sideways with 30 minutes to remain. You think, oh no, they're not going to get back together at all or after all. But with 10 minutes left in the movie, somehow miraculously everything works out and they live happily ever after. This is a Hallmark message. Movie. So I look at Amy and I say, baby, if you know how they're going to end, if the movies are so predictable, why do you watch them? And she has the same answer every time, because they're so sweet. Now, listen to me, if you've read ahead, if you've read through Hosea, this is not a sweet ending. This is not a sweet love story. This is not a story that even seems true. Many people believe it's a complete fabrication simply to illustrate Israel's unfaithfulness to God. But I can assure you, a real man by the name of Hosea took a real unfaithful wife by the name of Gomer and God used that relationship as an analogy for our unfaithfulness to Him. Sometimes people have trouble telling the truth. Sometimes people hear a story and right away you just know there's something fishy about it. Um, I heard about a little boy who had trouble telling the truth. His mother had had it up to here, because every day at school he went in with some outlandish tale of, you know, wild animals breaking out of the zoo and swimming in his swimming pool or or Martians from outer space landing in a flying saucer in the pasture nearby. He'd come to Sunday school and he'd tell one outrageous story after another. Finally, the mother had had enough. She went to the pastor. She said, can you help me? Can you do anything to help me teach my son to tell the truth? He tells the most outrageous stories. He said, bring him to me after the service. Sure enough, church was over. Mother goes and gets the boy out of his Sunday school classroom, brings him to the first pew in the church. The preacher sits down beside him and says, son, I want to tell you a story. Many years ago, I was preaching revival services in a small country church up in the mountains. One of those old wooden churches painted white with a steeple out front and a bell that that rang on the hour. There was a cross in the grass uh, in front of the parking lot and inside this church the pews were old, they were straight and they were wooden. I was about halfway through my message and people were seeming to respond when all of a sudden the boards in that old country church began to shake and, and creak. We didn't know if it was an earthquake, we didn't know what had happened. Everyone got deathly quiet. It went away. So I went to preaching. I got back into my message, and all about the time I was going to wrap things up, both back doors of that country church were ripped from their hinges, and the biggest grizzly bear I've ever seen got down on all fours and squeezed himself through that door. He stood up in the back of that old country church, and his head hit the ceiling. His fangs were dripping with the blood of others that he had eaten. He started grabbing those people wanting to eat them like French fries. We were running for the exits trying to leap out of the windows. And just about the time we had lost hope, this little old feisty dog, a Jack Russell Terrier with a little black circle around its wide eye. Burst through the back of that church, ran up on the back of that grizzly bear, got that bear by the throat and threw him down to the ground. Not once, not twice, but three times until that big, monstrous grizzly bear lie motionless in the aisle of that church. Why, we celebrated, we cheered for that little dog. The little boy's eyes were big. He said, now, son, I need to ask you, do you believe that story? Little boy with big eyes. Licked his lips and said, yes, sir, I do. Because that was my dog. When you read the story of Hosea, you may wonder if the author had trouble telling the truth. But I can promise you, this is a real love story. However, it's a love story unlike any other you've ever read or seen. One of the reasons that Hosea's story seems so outrageous to us, one of the reasons that when we read it chapter to chapter, it just seems so unreal to us, is because today, we, in our culture, in our communities, have lost almost all respect for tough love. When we hear the terminology tough love, we think of cruel and unusual punishment. We think of something that may be good in certain occasions, maybe, but a loving parent always has another option. Tough love is a term that was coined by a man by the name of Bill Milliken back in 1968 uh, in his book that held the same title. And in it, he describes tough love as follows. Tough love is the promotion of a person's welfare by enforcing certain constraints on them or requiring them to take responsibility for their actions. Now, that probably sounds good to most of us until we're in the position of enforcement. Look at it again. Tough love means... Promoting someone's personal well-being, their welfare. We're not looking out for momentary happiness. We're not simply trying to make a problem go away. We're looking way down the road of a child's life or a brother's life or a friend's life. And we're promoting their ultimate welfare by enforcing certain constraints on them. Now, these constraints are unpleasant. That's why we all wish to avoid them. But if you love someone and you love them enough, you're willing to employ tough love, which enforces those constraints or requires them to take responsibility for their own actions. I'm telling you that tough love is becoming extinct in American culture today. I'm telling you that we have brothers and sisters, we have children, we have parents, we have loved ones, those in relationships with us, who are struggling with sin and no one, no one is willing to let them live out the consequences of their own sin. If we can cover it up, sweep it under the rug, if we can make it go away and hope it never returns, that's what we choose almost every time. I married a school teacher. There are many school teachers in this church. School teachers at Grace Community Church are some of the finest men and women I know personally. And I will tell you that things have never been like they are today in the school. You see, there was a day, and again, I hate to sound like somebody's grandfather. If my teacher called my dad and said, we had a problem with Michael today, guess what? I had a problem with dad today, too. (laughs) But I can tell you that it doesn't work that way as much today. Many of our parents who only do what they do because they love their children don't have any appreciation for tough love. And many of our teachers who only teach your children because they love to teach and love children have no respect from the people that need to be supporting them the most. See, there are certain laws, certain policies, certain protocols that are in effect. So that if my child gets in trouble, one of the first things I do is I demand a meeting with a principal or I demand a meeting with the teacher. And I have witnessed parents shake their finger in a teacher's nose, knowing that teacher as well as I do, knowing that all that teacher wanted to do was enforce some kind of discipline in the classroom, not to take away from the 25 other students, to focus on one child who was misbehaving, and a parent, all they want to do is make that go away. The idea that we would ever stand up and live out the consequences of our own poor actions and bad choices is becoming Farther and farther, a distant memory. Tough love demands that sometimes we do what is difficult. And we don't like doing what is difficult. You see, that's the difference between God's love for us and our love for ourselves and each other. See, it's all about what God is focused on. God is focused not on my momentary happiness, but my long-term well-being. That's why sometimes His love is tough. That's why God disciplines us. That's why God reproves and corrects us. Because God is not concerned with your momentary happiness now. He's not concerned with your feelings of self-worth now. What God is concerned with is your long-term blessing and contentment. Your long-term benefit. That's not my focus, is it? My focus is on my momentary gratification. Happy now. That's my motto. I will quickly dismiss someone or something if it does not bring me a sense of satisfaction, happiness or joy in search of something else that will because I want to be happy now. This is why we go from relationship to relationship to relationship. And we carry some of the same bad relationship baggage with us from the first marriage into the second marriage and into the third marriage. It's because we want to be happy now. I tell people very often, if you're going through a divorce, when you get divorced, wait a year. Wait at least one year before you get involved with someone else. Very rarely does anyone take me up on that challenge. You need time for closure. You need time to heal. Listen, you need time to accept and assume certain responsibilities of the failed relationship in the first place. But nobody's into that because nobody's into tomorrow. Everybody's into today. Often when people get divorced, they go right into the next relationship because they had the next relationship before the first marriage ever ended. Nothing could be farther from the truth so far as helping you attain long-term happiness than that. It's one of the reasons that we find it easier to blame other people than to take responsibility for our own failure or our own actions rarely think about this when's the last time a politician when's the last time a professional athlete when's the last time a public figure of any kind sat behind a microphone at a news conference and said yes i did it it was horrible i'm sorry and i'm prepared to take my respo- i'm prepared to accept the consequences for my actions nobody does that anymore nobody does that anymore We have more tools at our disposal. We have more opportunities at our disposal to keep us today from assuming personal responsibility than at any other time before. It will always be easier to blame someone else and try and move on seeking our own momentary happiness than it is to stand up and take the medicine and say, look, I did it. I'm not totally at fault, but I played a large role in this and I'm ready to fix it. Nobody wants to do that anymore. It's one of the reasons parents handle their kids the way they handle them. It's easier to entertain them now than to teach them to entertain themselves. Look, it's easier to sweep their problem under the rug. It's easier to shield them from the consequences than it is to walk with them through the difficulty of accepting the consequences of their actions. You see, it's never been easier, ever, in my opinion, to avoid taking responsibility, to find momentary gratification, than it is now. You see, that's the big problem we don't get. We don't get. We don't appreciate tough love because we associate punishment with anger and not love. One of the reasons we read a book like Hosea, specifically chapter 2, that I'm going to read in a second, and we say, man... I just don't get that. That sounds so harsh. Is because we have come to a position in our communities and in our cultures where we associate any kind of punishment with anger, not love. And yet the Bible says it's exactly the opposite. The Scripture says because of His great love for us, He disciplines us. Because of a father's great love for a son, He reproves and corrects him. Punishment is not always out of anger. When we think punishment, we think of a father that's had enough. He's had it up to here, that little blue vein starting to show up inside of his neck. And here we go. Uh, My mother's, I mean, my wife's grandmother used to sentence spank. Do you know what this is? When you sentence spank, okay, you put the child over your knee. I told you, and at that moment you're just praying for a short sentence. Or that God will strike her mute. My dad was kind of like that. He kind of wanted to preach to you while he was spanking you. Listen, I will be the first to stand up and say, I thank God that when it was necessary, my parents employed tough love on me. Because believe me, it was necessary. There were times when they let me walk through the difficult consequences of my actions. There were times when they made sure that I felt personal responsibility to try and fix whatever mess I had created. The problem is, when we think about punishment, when we think about tough love, somehow we think God's angry with this. The Bible doesn't reveal an angry God toward us. He reveals an angry God toward sin. God didn't hate Israel. As Jonathan indicated last week, God was in a covenantal love agreement with Israel God's covenant would not allow him to do anything other than love these people. And even when they walked away, and even when he had to punish, and even when he had to discipline, it was motivated by love. You see, I do the tough thing in this relationship as a parent whose child is wrestling with drugs or alcohol, and we've gone through it again and again and again. Eventually, because I love you so much, I don't cover up any longer. I don't make it go away any longer. I stop paying all the bills for you, like I once did. And I let you walk out, live out the consequences. Do you know that that is one of the most effective tools a parent or a loved one dealing with someone in uh, alcoholism or drug addiction has at their disposal? The whole idea of an intervention. You ever heard of this term? An intervention is built on the concept of tough love. If you don't start making good choices for you, here's what I'm prepared to do. Well, that's kind of like what we'll read in a moment from Hosea chapter 2. Here's the big statement. I want to make sure everybody gets this before we read. Here it is. God disciplines us because of His great love for us. No other reason but that. God disciplines us because He loves us so very much. Look with me at verse 2 of chapter 2. The book is Hosea. The Bible says, rebuke your mother. That would be Gomer. And that would be Israel. Who's doing the speaking here? That would be Hosea or that would be God. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. God is calling for a formal accusation here. God wants somebody to stand up, point at Israel and speak the obvious. God wants somebody to stand up and say, you are not acting like Hosea's wife. You are not acting like you are in a covenantal love relationship with God Almighty. You are not acting like a mother. You are not acting like a wife. Therefore, He is not your husband. Keep reading. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Now, don't miss this. Because this sets up the whole chapter. If you miss this, You're going to get lost in the weeds, lost in the darkness, lost in the blackness of the judgment that is coming. If you miss the end of verse 2, you're going to miss the whole groundwork for this covenantal love relationship that God has with Israel. He says, look, this is what I want. I don't want to punish you. I don't want to discipline you. I want you to remove that adulterous look from your eyes. I want you to remove that unfaithfulness from your, from between your breasts. I want you to return to me, is what God's saying. The best case scenario, God says, is for you to come to your senses and return to your love relationship that I'm all about. Verse 3. Otherwise, here it comes. I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. Wow, that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Sometimes that's what it takes. Verse 4, I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Again, it sounds like God has had it with this relationship. It sounds like God's finished with this relationship. It sounds like Hosea wants to exercise his legal right and divorce this woman. Or even worse yet, stone her. But remember, God's great covenant love will not allow it. God's desire is to bring her back. End of verse, let's see, verse 5. Their mother has been unfaithful. She's conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my many lovers. In the original language, the word is Baals, B-A-A-L-S, Baals. You heard of the idols to Baal of the Old Testament? That's what he's saying. Hosea is saying, My wife has decided to return to her idols. My wife has desired or decided to try and get what she needs in this life. From the idol, not the one true God. That's what Israel has done, and that's what we sometimes do. Keep reading. They give me my food and my water. That's nourishment. Gomer thought, I'm better cared for. I'm better nourished when I hang around with these rich Johns. Not back with Hosea. Israel thought, we're better served. Seems like we have better crops, make more money. If we bow down to the God of Baal, not the one true God, that's nourishment. My wool and my linen, that's protection from the elements. Wool keeps me warm when it's cold and linen makes me comfortable when it's not. And my olive oil and my drink, the pleasures in this life. You've got nourishment, you've got protection, and you've got pleasures. Gomer thought she could do better with someone besides Hosea. Israel thought they could do better with someone besides God. And i got to be honest with you, sometimes your pastor thinks he can do better with something besides a dedicated affection to my Heavenly Father. So what's God going to do? Verse 6, Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. I'm going to create limits, boundaries out there. She's going to search for something, but guess what? She's not going to be able to find it. That's what he says next. Verse 7. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. How many times have we turned away from God to pursue something that deep down we know is out of bounds, only to never really be able to get it? You ever experienced this? That's what he's describing. That's because God has created thorn bushes. He's walled her in. He's saying, you will run, but you'll only run so far. Now notice verse 7. The idea is that she'll come to her senses and will say, I need to go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. Like this story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Who spends his inheritance. Ruins his life. Winds up feeding pigs in needy slop. And he comes to his senses. And he realizes, my father's hired men are living better lives than I'm living. I'm going to return. Hosea wanted Gomer to realize, when she searched and could not find, and she sought, but it could not be grasped, he wanted her to wake up and say, I was better off in a faithful, loving, committed relationship with Hosea. Just like God wants us to wake up and say, Look, what you're seeking won't be found in this life. You're better off to return. There are people in this church right now, I know because I know your story. Ten years ago, you made far less money than you make today, but you will attest to the fact that you were far more content, your marriage was strong, your family was close. Now you make much more money, but have none of those things. And the biggest difference between the you today and the you ten years ago was ten years ago, your faith was simple. You were devoted to God, and you followed Him. And that covenant love relationship was mutual. And today, not so much. Maybe like Gomer. Maybe like your pastor from time to time. Maybe like Israel, you've decided to chase after some things. Look, this may be why the big thing that you're seeking can't be found right now. Could be tough love. This may be why you can't seem to get ahead financially. Could be tough love. This may be, according to James chapter 5, the reason you're battling this ongoing mysterious illness. Could be tough love. Look, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to leave here today and think, hmm, sounds like Mike is saying every bad thing in my life is a result of sin. No, no. Tough times, according to this book, are the result of four things, okay? Number one is the fact that we live in a fallen universe. Genesis chapter 3, John chapter 16, verse 33, the world we know today is not the world God originally created. See, God cursed the universe in Genesis 3 and it fell from its original glory. That's why bad things happen. We live in a fallen universe. There's another reason why we face trials and or why we face tough times, and that's because of trials and tests. Do you realize that the whole book of Job tells the story of a man who experienced trials and tests at the hands of God and the enemy? Sometimes, according to James chapter 1, bad things come our way to make us strong. Now look, we get that when it comes to our athletes. We want coaches to push those men and women. We want to pound that iron. We want to run those wind sprints. Why? We want to break you down now so you'll be strong on game day. But we hate the concept when it comes to our own personal lives. Soon as something bad comes our way, which may be nothing more than a test, maybe nothing more than not a way for you to prove something to God, God already knows, but a way for you, God to prove something to you about you, we run, tail between our legs, cry out. Ah. Here's number three. According to Ephesians 5, sometimes we're experiencing tough times because of careless living. We've made dumb choices. And number four, sometimes we experience tough times because of what we're talking about today. Tough love. Proverbs chapter 3 and many other passages in the Bible tell us because God loves us, He reproves us. He disciplines us. Now, I told you, I don't want you leaving here and start looking at every negative thing in your life and say, Oh, that's a result of sin. No. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Deep down, you know if it's there. Deep down you know if there's something you've been hiding. Deep down you know if there's something completely out of bounds. Deep down you know if you're like Gomer. And what you're experiencing is coming directly from God and His tough love. You see, the key to responding to God's tough love is a theological term that we don't throw around very often in regular conversation. It's the word repentance. What did God want Gomer to do? What did He want Israel to do? Verse 7, He wanted her to repent. He wanted her to confess her sin, and turn away to return back to God. That's what the prodigal son did in Luke chapter 15. That's what others have done throughout the Scriptures. That's what David did following his great sin with Bathsheba. We have the record in Psalm chapter 51. He repented. He confessed his sin and he turned back to God. See, the best thing for Gomer was to wake up and realize that she was better off with Hosea in a faithfully committed love relationship. And guess what? Same's true for you, same's true for me. Now, what possible relevance does a 3,000 year old story like this have today? Well, more than you think. You see, even a follower of Jesus Christ can forget the special relationship that we have with our God. He's more than my creator. He's more than the author of the universe. He's more than my judge. He's more than my counselor and guide. The Bible says He is my heavenly Father. And like Gomer lost interest in Hosea and chased after other lovers, we can do the same thing. We can make plans. We can build dreams. We can pursue goals that have nothing to do with God. You see, when we compromise our lifestyle, like Israel of the Old Testament... And we live our lives like everybody else. We do marriage like everybody else. We do money like the pagans. We solve problems like uh, everybody else. Then we're being unfaithful to God. Just like Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea. And guess what? It's going to cost us more than we're willing to pay. Just like it did Israel. Now that's something to think about. Let's pray. Maybe while I pray... God, brings something to your mind. Maybe as I've spoken today, you've thought, hmm, it's been a bad few years. Maybe I'm being reproved, corrected, even disciplined because of God's tough love. Right now, at this moment, that's the time to repent from that, whatever it is. Father, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds. God, show us, reveal to us, even now, at this moment. Burn the image into our brain, the word into our brain, the the person into our brain. And Father, if we are being disciplined, I pray that you'll give us the courage to repent and to start over by returning back to you. Now, Father, for the rest who are just struggling day to day to make it all work, God, I pray that you'll keep us sensitive to this idea. That we won't be trapped, cleverly allured by the enemy. To try and pursue something that cannot be found, at least here in this life. Help us remain and keep our faith walk very simple. We love you, you love us. We want to honor you, you bless us. We pray all of these things because of our richest blessing in you, Father, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Make it a fantastic week. I'll see you next time.